Uh, David is going to come read for us from John 4, 43 through the end of the chapter. Come on up, brother. Now as he's coming, um, if you're new with us here, our habit is to simply open the Bible, take the next chapter of the book we're going through, the next section, and study it together and seek to uncover what it says. So let's listen as David reads for us. So John 4, uh, 43 to 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Awesome. Thank you. I know I'm not supposed to be envious, but I have a little voice envy of you. Awesome voice. We've covered a lot of ground together the last six weeks as we've studied John 2, 3, and 4. These three chapters cover Jesus' first wave of ministry. You could think of it as Jesus going public with who he is and what he came to do. In John chapter 2, he started in a town called Cana, which was up in Jesus' neck of the woods. This is where the very first miracle he ever did happened. And then he made his way down to Jerusalem, the same city by that name today, where he drove out the money changers, and he had a powerful conversation about being born again with a man named Nicodemus. Last week, we saw that Jesus was visiting with the most unlikely of all people, an immoral Samaritan woman. And the author of the the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, wove these stories together in such a way to tell us today in a powerful way That Jesus isn't simply the Savior for some people. He's the Savior for all people who would believe in Him. Whether that's a religious Jew named Nicodemus, an outsider from Samaria, or today a Gentile official, Jesus is able to save all who would come to Him in belief. 
It's clear from these passages that people from all walks of life with all kinds of backgrounds are welcomed into eternal life by Jesus Christ. And the text that David read for us just a minute ago, we find Jesus back up in Cana. He's back at the same spot where John 2 began. This is as though we're coming back full circle to where Jesus began his public ministry. The first miracle in Cana was where Jesus turned water into wine. Tad preached on that passage for us about six weeks ago. This showed the power of God to initiate and to continue at a party. Now, the second miracle, which we'll study today, is the healing of a government official son. Those are rather different, aren't they? But they took place in the same city. Same city, two very different miracles. As you step back and reflect on that for a moment before we can look, before we consider specifics, friend, Jesus can handle any and every situation. Whether it's a party going sour or a son on his deathbed, there is no need that we could bring to God that if God doesn't so choose, he can't simply meet. Jesus is the one with all power. And so these stories, as they sort of serve as bookends to the first wave of Jesus' public ministry, are showing us quite clearly that Jesus has unparalleled power. He's able to meet any and every need. So whether your life is a party today or you're in a very deep point of sorrow, the God of the Bible is capable of showing your His love and His grace to you, whatever circumstance you may be in. Religious outsiders, religious outsiders like that woman at the well, or religious insiders like Nicodemus, all can come to Christ and have their needs met by Him. The gospel is for all people, not just people like us. But to come to Christ, you must have belief, and not just any belief. You must have a certain kind of belief. It turns out, as we'll learn from this passage today, that not all belief is genuine, saving belief. Not all belief is real belief. Belief in gen- genuine Jesus must be a genuine faith. The healing of John chapter 4 closes out our going public series, and it does so in order to highlight the nature of genuine faith, which is what we'll be spending on together this morning. Now look at verse 54 with me, if you would, the very end of the story. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Sign is a a very specific word and a very significant word throughout the book of the Gospel of John. This isn't a road sign, and as far as we know, Jesus didn't know any sign language. It's something else entirely. Sign in the Gospel of John is a technical word. You'll find it throughout the book. It is one way in which the author wrote or even organized what he wrote. Signs were powerful miracles done by Jesus as proof 
of his identity and as a demonstration of his mission. They showed that Jesus is, in fact, the king and that he's bringing in himself a kingdom in which broken things are being put back together, a kingdom in which eventually, when he's with his people forever, everything is as it should be, as, Jesus, as Tad prayed about earlier this morning. This kingdom is marked by truth and wholeness, not by lies and destruction. Now, these signs were always about something in particular. And toward the end of the book, we find these words in John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's absolutely essential in looking at the story of Jesus healing someone to understand that ultimately the healing wasn't simply about the healing in and of itself. The sign's purpose wasn't to tell us, if you too will believe in Jesus, then God will heal any physical ailment you have. He might, but that isn't the promise that we're given. That isn't really why the first healing took place anyway. The healing of this official son was ultimately about signifying, showing, demonstrating who Jesus is so that by believing in him, you could have healing of the bigger problem that you and I have, and that's spiritual separation from God. Now, why am I going into all that? Well, it's common today for people to believe that they can't believe in God without some outward demonstration, without some proof like the kind that we're going to study today. Have you ever heard somebody say that if, well, if I saw miracles like the miracles in the Bible, then I would believe? Have you thought that yourself? Well, honestly, I think that's an understandable perspective. The Bible's full of miraculous things that cannot be manufactured. So while it's an understandable way of thinking, it's not true. Because even within the Bible, we see that some people who saw miracles believed, but many didn't. There were lots of people in the Bible who saw God overrule the natural laws of nature or restore someone who was sick, or even bring back to life someone who had died. But lots of those people didn't believe. They only saw the miracles and enjoyed the show for the sake of the show. We might say they used Jesus for what he could provide, but didn't come to him for life. That's the difference. You see, these signs at times served their purpose for some people, but for many people, Jesus was just a magician or a freak show, but not God in the flesh. We might say they believed in the miracle, but they didn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. 
Friend, the issue for you and I today is not whether we've seen signs or not. This text isn't about have you seen a healing or have you not. The issue is the posture of your heart. Are you open to God or are you not open to God? Seeing a sign won't convince you one way or the other. The signs were ultimately about belief in Jesus, the bringer of eternal life, not simply belief for the sake of a healing. You see, if you aren't open and genuinely interested, no miracle, however big, will ever actually convince you. We have an incredible ability to explain away what we don't believe. In Jesus' day, many, many, many people rejected him. They rejected him in spite of seeing miracles. They didn't believe, not because they didn't see miracles, but because they didn't want to believe. They didn't have genuine faith because they didn't want to. A lack of seeing something miraculous today is only an excuse for not believing the truth. You see, faith is believing the truth without seeing it yet fulfilled. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This story in which a healing takes place isn't ultimately about finding more healings. It's about taking Jesus at his word. It's about you can trust what he says. Genuine faith in Jesus always takes Jesus at his word. Now let's look at the incredible healing of this son and see that even this story is about that. Look back with me at verse 46. And by the way, the length of the introduction is not indicative of the length of the sermon. Verse 46 indicates that there was a, an official whose son was near death. Undoubtedly, this official would have been a, an official, a governmental ruler as part of King Herod's household. That probably means that he had great political clout, that he was a man of status, that he was important, that he was used to getting what he wanted to get when he wanted to get it. Probably also means he was well-to-do, and he had the resources of the Roman Empire at his disposal. And so this father, who had a sick son, had done everything he could do to seek restoration for his child. We would say he'd found the best doctors. He'd gone to Mayo. He'd gone to MD Anderson. He'd seen everybody he could see to try and fix his son. But he just got sicker and sicker and sicker. This is a good reminder for us that money can't give you an absence of trouble. That there will be problems we face. That it doesn't matter our level of corporate clout 
or how much money we have. Trouble will come knocking on our doors. It had to this man. Religious people in Jesus' day thought that Jesus was for them, not for those people. And yet, this guy, who was a Gentile, an outsider, came to Jesus. Very similar to the other stories we've looked at, right? Nicodemus, a guy who should have already known better. But Jesus says, you've got to be born again. A Samaritan woman who, by the Jewish standards, was beyond hope. She found life in Jesus. And now this Roman occupier coming to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior for the whole world, not just for those who are like us. All of this official's power and money and clout couldn't fix his son. There's nothing, nothing, like having a child who's sick. Parents, imagine this being your son or your daughter. When Jill, my wife, was pregnant with our second, with Micah, we went to the first ultrasound, excited and anticipatory. And we'd done this before, so we kind of knew He's going to look like an alien, but the organs are going to be about this size, and they'll point to each one, and they'll tell you if everything looks great. Well, in this ultrasound, that isn't what happened. There was the alien-looking thing, and then there were two very large, misshaped organs. So the tech left, and she came back with the doctor. The doctor explained to us that Micah had some kind of kidney problem. We should come back in a week. They check again. Maybe it was just an, an abnormality in the test. So we came back in a week, did another ultrasound. They told us he had something called hydronephrosis. That is, kidneys weren't draining properly. And that one of them might be damaged beyond repair. And not only was that kidney damaged, but that he might not make it to term. And that if he did, he might be born and have not just a kidney problem, but abnormalities that rendered him unable to survive. Those of you who know Jill know she is an incredibly strong, godly woman, a woman of great faith. And yet, when we got home, I took Abby, our two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, and went for a walk so Jill could have some time by herself. When we came back, she was sitting in the, on a chair in the kitchen in a ball, weeping, weeping, weeping. Why? Because her son was sick. But she'd, she'd never held him. She'd never met him. She never played with him. She never saw him run, heard him speak. Imagine what this father felt. He had held his son. He had watched him go from only crying to sometimes crying, and crawling, running, speaking, playing. 
But then he watched the son get sick. He watched his son first begin to cough and then take on a fever then wind up confined to a bed. Eventually, he's past the point of being able to speak. This father had held his wife as his wife had wept. He had taken every resource he had, and yet nothing was helping. But now he heard. That guy named Jesus who had been in Cana before, and he'd turned water into wine. Maybe he could do something. If he can take water to wine, maybe he can take nearly dead boys and bring them life. And so he did what every father would do. He got on his horse, and he sped away, traveled the 23 miles from Capernaum to Cana, ran up to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you heal my son, we've done everything we know to do. There's nowhere else to turn. Can you help us? Would you heal my son? Now look at Jesus' response in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. If you're bored with the Bible, you're not actually reading the Bible. The, this is one of those moments where Jesus does not fit the modern paradigm of who Jesus is. A father is begging him to bring life back to his son. And Jesus seemingly, rather coldly, says, if you don't see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe seems rather cruel at first glance, doesn't it? A couple things that might help. The New Testament was written in Greek, and you can't tell this very plainly in English, but the you in that verse is plural. So here's what that means. Jesus is looking at this father who wants his son to be healed, but he's saying to everyone listening, and in fact, to the whole region, unless you all, from the south, you know what to say, unless y'all, unless everybody sees signs and wonders, none of you will believe. Jesus is saying to that man and to everybody else who was listening, you all should think less about miraculous signs and wonders and think more about me. You're, you're looking and staring and longing for big miracles, but you don't seem to really want anything to do with me. They weren't interested in whether Jesus was who he said he was. All they wanted was his tricks. You see, Jesus is pointing out the shallowness of belief, a belief that just believes in the miracle, but not in the person of the miracle. They were curious and intrigued, but had no interest in surrendering to who Jesus was. They were motivated by selfishness 
for what Jesus could do for them, not genuine spiritual interest. I wonder, can you relate? Does that describe your current posture toward God? I'll take the benefits of Jesus, but I'm not interested in Jesus himself. That's a kind of belief, but it's not a saving belief. Now, why does Jesus respond that way? Why does Jesus say, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe? Again, it seems rather cruel at first read. Let me give you two reasons. One, because a desire to get things from Jesus without a desire to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to follow Him, isn't real belief. It's not real faith. And so it was loving for Jesus to say to them, you don't really believe. It was the most helpful thing He could possibly say. Because He came to give eternal life. But a second reason is think back with me if you were here a week ago. Where has Jesus just been? He'd been in Samaria. Now, Samaria was full of people who weren't supposed to believe, people who were outsiders, people who had cut up their Old Testament and only believed in the first five books. They rejected all the rest, people who didn't have genuine belief. And yet what happened? Jesus spoke words to a woman at the well, and she came to saving faith. And then she went and told her town, and a whole bunch of people from her town believed. They believed in the absence of signs and wonders. And yet now Jesus has left those half-breed Samaritans, traveled back into his home town, into his home region, and he's finding the rejection of his own people. They're not believing, even though they've seen signs. May that be a powerful lesson for us. We ought to be more like the Samaritans than like the people who think of themselves as religious insiders. Jesus didn't heal anybody in Samaria, and yet many came to believe. Friends, we might say it this way today. There's no friends with benefits with God. God expects, God deserves, God demands complete allegiance. Or you don't get any of Him. Now, if that's hard to grasp, those of you who are married, or even those of you who aren't married, this concept should seem rather plain. A wife who is jealous that her husband not sleep around, we would call that good and normal, right? The God who created you is jealous that you worship only Him. That is also good and right and normal. You must commit to Him to be given life from Him. Now, the Father's response to Jesus' rather abrupt statement is even more shocking. Look at it in verse 49. 
The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This shows such incredible humility. Remember who he is. This is a guy with clout. Jesus is a poor, Jewish, uneducated nobody. And yet this man with money and power and status doesn't say to him, who do you think you are? How could you talk to me like that? I rode an entire day here to see you, and you just brushed me off? That's what a person with power would do, right? You don't want to come to the White House? You're not invited anymore. That's the way people in power act, but not this guy. He, he instead said, Jesus, please, please come heal my son. I have nowhere else to go. This official shows a spark of genuine faith. Faith that would later fan into a flame of biblical saving faith. You see, this guy had come to the end of his rope. He had reached a point of humble desperation. And that's what Jesus responds to. That's what Jesus always responds to. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, understand that the kind of prayers that God answers are not prayers that come from people who deserve Him to do something. They're not prayers that come from those of us who have cleaned ourselves up, who have stopped our most obvious bad habits, who frequent this room, who put money in the offering plate, who don't have sketchy pasts. The prayers that God responds to are the prayers of people who know, I've reached the end of myself. I have nowhere else to go but to God. God responds to the prayers of desperation, the prayers of the humble, the prayers of people who know, Jesus doesn't have to do anything for me, but he seems like an awfully great guy. So God, I've got nowhere else to turn. Would you help me? And so Jesus said, go, your son is healed. If you'll come to Jesus with a posture of humility, there's nothing Jesus can't do for you. Now here's the most critical part of the entire story. And it's one that's simple and easy to miss. The father's request wasn't Jesus, would you heal my son? It was more than that. It was, Jesus, come. Come back with me to Capernaum because there my son is. And would you heal him? Did you catch that little detail? 
And yet, what did Jesus do? Jesus simply said, go. Your son will live. Now, so what? The boy wasn't healed by Jesus' touch. He was healed by Jesus' word. Jesus had no need to go to Capernaum. From 23 miles away, he could simply say to the father, your son will live. And that was enough. The word of God carries, indeed it is, the very power of God. What Jesus speaks is what God does. Could Jesus have touched and healed? Sure. But the words of God are the very power of God. Go, your son will live. Now, we can't dwell here long, but imagine back at the house, 23 miles away. Mom is probably up in the bed with the son holding him. The servants are bringing cool washcloths, wiping them on this son's head, trying to bring down his fever. But he can't even talk anymore. He's on the very cusp of death. But all of a sudden, the fever breaks. The, the sweat stops pouring The paleness begins to change back to flesh. The boy sits up, begins to speak. Mom is cautiously optimistic at this moment, but pretty soon he's up running around. By the time the father is there the next day, the whole town is amazed. The boy on the brink of death is back. And so the, the family runs to meet the father and tells him, you're never going to believe what happened. The father says, oh, no, I believe. When did it happen? I know when it happened. I was back in Cana, and this guy named Jesus spoke words, and, and he healed our son. And so powerful was this moment, was this word that the whole household believed. What a story. A boy who was about to die was restored by the word of Jesus. Friend, genuine faith in Jesus always takes Jesus at his word. And this kind of faith, faith centered on the words of Jesus, always grows when it's stretched. If you look closely at verse 50 and closely at verse 53, you'll find something that seems kind of odd. It says in both cases that he believed, that the official believed. What's up with that? I think, after chewing on this all week, that 
what's being said is that in verse 50, the official believed the word that Jesus spoke. He took what Jesus said at his word. But in verse 53, he really believed. In other words, biblical trust in Jesus takes Jesus at his word. But when it's strained and stressed through trial and hardship, then when we get out the other side, then we really believe. In other words, faith grows as it sees God's Word worked out. The official's faith grew as he experienced God's grace. Maybe an analogy would help. There's two or three of us in the room that go to the gym. I don't know why you do that. But I've heard that if you go to the gym and you use your muscles, then your muscles will grow. Clearly, I am not applying this principle. But strain and stress on your muscles produces growth in your muscles. The same is true of faith. As life brings difficulties and your faith is put to the test and you take Jesus at his word, then your faith will grow. It will get bigger. It will encompass more of your life. There'll be a smaller part of you and me that doesn't believe. The next time a trial or hardship comes along, faith grows stronger as it meets opposition and hardship. We might say the muscle milk of biblical faith is the unwanted needs and trials of life. That's one of the great lessons of this story. Affliction is for our good. One author put it this way, Jesus is not interested in satisfying crowds who want to be entertained. He's interested in sinners who feel their need and are prepared to take him at his word. Brothers and sisters, be very careful in trial not to stiff arm the God who brought that trial because his plan is to use it to give you bigger muscles of faith, to grow you closer to him, to take you from belief to deeper belief, stronger belief, genuine belief. One of my closest friends is a dead guy named J.C. Ryle. Now, he talks to me. I don't talk to him. But he says that affliction is one of God's medicines. That is so true. God uses difficulty, trial, hardship to move us from belief to deeper belief. And how does that journey How do we transverse it? We do it by taking God at his word, by trusting him, by believing what he says is true. Affliction brought this man, this official, to meet Jesus. Think of what had happened if the boy had never gotten sick. Likely he never would have gotten on the horse, never would have traveled to Canaan, never would have met Jesus, never would have believed him, never would have traveled back to Capernaum, never would have shared Jesus with the whole house. And the whole house likely never would have come to saving faith in Christ. 
The thing you most want to not happen may be the thing you most want to need to happen. God uses trials to bring us closer to Him. Because it's in trial that we're brought to a point of desperation in which we learn Jesus is the only place to turn. And we can take Jesus at His word. Now let's circle back to where we started. This story uh, about a healing isn't really about a healing. It's deeper than that. This story that contains a healing is about Jesus' power. It's about the power of His word. It's about His ability to speak and things change. It's not a promise that if you're sick and you believe in Jesus, that God will heal you. Now, why am I belaboring that point? It's because if you go home today and you turn on your TV to the Christian channel, or you pick up the books that sell the most in the spiritual section of the bookstore, you will find the message that if you just believe hard enough, then God will do whatever it is you want Him to do. And friend, I love you too much to pass over a text like this and to say to you, that's not true. This story isn't about if you are sick and you come to Jesus and you believe enough, then God is obligated to fix the trial. He may do that. This probably falls in the the too much information bucket, but, and the first service didn't get this, but you're going to. On Thursdays now, I take an injection for lupus. That means on Saturday, I spend the whole day on the toilet. That's not fun. I'm getting a lot of reading done. (laughs) Now, I would love it if, as I've prayed to Jesus, Jesus would say, go home. You will live. No more chemotherapy injection. No more Saturdays on the toilet. No more saying to my son five, six, seven times a day, I'm sorry, I can't do that with you because I'm laying on the couch. I would love that. But Jesus is good. Even if I spend the rest of my life injecting myself on Thursday and pooping my brains out on Saturday, God does not promise me healing in this life. What he does promise me is if I believe the word of Jesus Christ, I will have eternal life. That's what this story is about. Taking Jesus at his word. Now next week, please don't all of you go to the first so you don't have to hear about my bathroom habits. This story is in the Bible to encourage genuine faith in what God does promise. God promises forgiveness of sin, welcome into God's family, life with Him forever, if you believe. That's what Jesus promises. Now, how can we be convinced of that? Well, because there's real stories about historical people in the Scriptures who experienced that 
What Jesus promises comes with the guarantee of heaven. And so critical for us to understand today is that beyond what's recorded in the Bible, no more signs are needed. This sign, the sign of Jesus lifted up, dying in our place, rising again, that's enough. That's the final sign. There are no more necessary in order to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus is enough. You can take him at his word. Which raises an obvious question. How do you know what Jesus says? Where do you go to find the words of God? My friend, you go here. One of the things I read in my experience yesterday was a whole book. And this book said, the new book about the Bible. And it said, the Bible's inspired in the same way you are inspired. God has breathed life into a book. He's breathed life into you. So if you just pursue things that are beautiful, then you are inspired. Friends, that's not true. God's Word is inspired unlike anything else. It is Him breathing. It is Him speaking as we read it together. The words of God have the very power of God. So if you want to know who Jesus is and find life in His name, you don't have to look inward for how you feel. You don't have to look outward for some miraculous sign. You simply have to read. That's what Romans 10 verse 17 says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's what Colossians 3.16 says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Genuine saving faith takes God at His Word. And His Word is His Word. It is enough. Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book called Taking God at His Word, ends with these words. Let us not weaken in our commitment to our unbreakable Bible. Let us not wander from this divinely exhaled truth. Let us not waver in our delight and desire. God has spoken, and through the revelation, He still speaks. Ultimately, we can believe the Bible because we believe in the power and the wisdom and the goodness and the truthfulness of the God whose authority and veracity cannot be separated from the Bible. We trust the Bible because it's God's Bible. And God being God, we have every reason to take Him at His word. Friend, you can take... God at His Word. When our experiences and what we think God has promised us don't match, it's not because God has lied. It's because we've misunderstood. And God's big enough to handle our misunderstandings. You can take God at His Word. His Word says, if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life today. Let's pray.